and take your Bibles and open them to the book of Amos as we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, one sermon on each of the prophets we come in chronological order to the prophet Amos. We're not taking these in biblical order, but chronologic order. So we're still in the early parts of the kingdom, around probably 760 B.C., when God called Amos to go preach to Israel. That uh, book is found on page 1419 of the Pew Bible. As you turn there, I want to tell you about Fleming Rutledge's book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. In that book, Fleming acknowledges the difficulty that modern people have with the concept of God's wrath. We have difficulty with the concept of God's wrath. Nevertheless, she writes, there can be no turning away from this prominent biblical theme, God's wrath. In helping us to understand the wrath of God, she points out, she, she points back to ourselves. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, she writes, we might pause and reflect the next time we are outraged at something about our property values being threatened, about our children's educational opportunities being limited, about our taxes increasing and increasing. She ends by saying, all of us are capable of outrage or anger about something. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? What causes you outrage? Think about that for a moment. What causes outrage to well up in you? Is it, maybe in this season that we're in, is it the, the deadlock in Washington or the political system? Or maybe the media biases on both sides? Can't get objective news anymore? Perhaps you're outraged at how our troops are treated. Or maybe you look around at the culture and you just get outraged at the, at the moral decay you see around you. Or maybe it's, it's the state of the church itself being nominal and ineffective in some cases. Or how about an NFL players taking a knee when the national anthem is played. What causes anger to well up inside you? What is it that causes you outrage? Whatever it is, I want you to think about that for a moment and kind of capture that. And then I want to turn all of our attention to Amos. Because in Amos, we realize that, that our outrage, whatever outrages us, whatever makes us angry, is nothing, nothing compared to the anger and outrage that our God feels towards sin. I want you to turn with me to the first First chapter of Amos, 
And we read there the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. What he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Mount Carmel withered. One of the commentaries that I used uh, several years ago when I preached through the book of Amos is by a man named Ray Bealey. And the title of his commentary was The Roaring of the Lion. The Roaring of the Lion. That's the image that Amos paints of our God. A roaring lion. In chapter 3, verse 8, you see that image come up again. He says, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? God is angry. God is outraged at the sin of the ungodly. God is outraged at the sin of the ungodly. That's what the whole first chapter teaches us, isn't it? If you read this, as I, as I encourage you to do, read each of these prophets before I preach on them, I hope you got that impression. It looks, look with me at starting at verse 3. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. I mean, that, that's a Hebraism there of saying, listen, it's not just three sins, it's not just four sins, it's a lot of sin. He's not going to turn back his wrath because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazel and I will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter of Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. This is this is to the Philistines. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza and that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter of Ascalon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the last of the Philist- until the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign God. And he goes on and on to say the same things about Tyre and Edom and Ammon. And in chapter 2, he starts out with Moab. These are all the surrounding nations of Judah and Israel. God is outraged at the sin of the ungodly. And he's telling Israel about his outrage. He's outraged at the sin of the brutality in excessive cruelty of Damascus. He's outraged at the sin of the inhumane treatment and slavery of the Philistines. He's outraged at the sin of the lying and oath-breaking of Tyre. He's outraged at the sin of vengeful hatred of Edom. He's outraged by the sin of the helpless in society being oppressed by Ammon and Moab. The point Amos is told to convey to Israel is God is outraged at the sin of the ungodly. 
As Fleming continues in her book, she writes, The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time, as though the God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and has come to set matters right. We have to understand this truth, people. God hates sin. God is outraged by sin. Isaiah 26, 21. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sin. Ezekiel 25.17, I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And in our public reading today in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. Scripture makes exceedingly clear Yahweh hates sin. There's no getting around it. God's wrath is kindled. That's the kindling that starts the fire of his wrath. And Amos was called by God out of a life of shepherding and tree farming to go and travel from just outside Jerusalem to the northern kingdom of Israel and proclaim this in that context. 760 years before our Lord. To proclaim that the godlessness around them has made God angry. And in an application, Amos and his calling is a challenge, first of all, directed directly at the pulpits in the Christian church. Does the church do justice to the wrath of God? Does the church, is the church faithful in telling people that God hates their sin. The website Patheos said, there's no shortage of feel-good preachers out there today, and they are deceiving many people with empty words. Some say there's no hell, no wrath. God accepts all sin and condones human behavior. But they are deceiving themselves and many others too. The wrath of God, it continues, will be more fierce on those who teach such lies and omit them from their pulpit. The message of God's wrath against sin, which necessitates the need for repentance, forgiveness, the cross, holy living, and obeying God. The outrage that God has towards sin is not very well represented in our pulpits today. In general. I'm painting with a wide brush here, but it's not very well represented. The beauty of expository preaching, of preaching the, the message that comes out of Scripture and being faithful to it, is that you can't get around this. You can't get around these difficult issues. 
these issues that are uncomfortable, like God's wrath, like that the main theme that is in Amos before us today. We shouldn't sugarcoat it. And Amos is a book that consistently dis- displays the wrath of God. If you read this book, and you can easily read it in one sitting, I hope you got that feeling, the weight of God's wrath. Chapter after chapter after chapter. But not only does it challenge the pulpits, but it challenges the person too. Do we speak about God's wrath to people? Just think back. When is the last time when you're sharing with somebody that you talked about God's wrath? Do we ever express that to people? Do we ever tell people that God is outraged by their sin? Or do we shy away from this aspect of our God? Do we, as someone prayed, do we praise God for his wrath? And if we avoid this, are we actually hurting those people, harming them spiritually? Think about what John MacArthur says. He wrote, how can people understand anything about love if they don't understand God's hate? How can they understand anything about his grace if they don't know about his law? How can they understand forgiveness if they don't understand the penalty for sin? Men cannot, he writes. They cannot seek grace and salvation unless they are affected with the dread of the wrath of God that is upon them. Unless men sense that they are in grave danger, he ends, there's no pressure applied to them to change. Have you ever thought about that? To not tell people of God's anger towards their sin is actually unkind. In today's culture, many are afraid to speak of this aspect of God, this outrage, this, this, this anger at sin. We're afraid to be labeled as angry, judgmental manipulators, aren't we? I don't want people to think that of me. Let me ask you a question. Do you, when you read Amos, did you feel that he was manipulating Israel at all? Or just saying, like he said in chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear it? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You know what he's saying there? This is God's word to you. This isn't me. I'm just passing along a message. Paul did the same thing when he wrote that, what we read together. He's just passing along to the Roman church that God is actually angry and hates sin. Walter Chandry, pastor and former editor of Banner Truth, wrote this, There are no easy steps to witnessing. Boy, isn't that true? No painless, unembarrassing methods. You must bring men to see that they are filthy sinners under the wrath of God who must flee to Christ for mercy. He goes on, he says, and that is offensive. 
We must tell people that Yahweh is outraged at their sin. He's outraged at the ungodly. Not a very popular message today. Boy, that's going to be attractive. Boy, that'll draw them in here like bees to honey. How can we but prophesy? How can we but not pass that along? And that's surely what Amos is doing here. He points points God's wrathful finger to the nations around them and says, Look, Israel, God is angry at sin. But then he does something unexpected. The unexpected outrage of God. God's anger that was turned outward to the nations all of a sudden turns inward. Did you notice that? Look in chapter one, chapter 2, verses 4. It says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods. The gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah and will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now here, Amos is preaching in northern Israel and he turns to Judah and he says, listen, Judah has kindled God's wrath. And you know how Israel probably responded to that? Can you guess? Yeah, get them. They didn't like Judah as much as they didn't like Ammon or Moab or Edom or Philistia. Yeah, that's right, God, you get them. But then something unusual happens. Verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Amos goes on, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. God turns his anger towards Israel itself. God is outraged at how Israel is living. And that was totally unexpected. Because they were his people, right? These are God's people. Judah and Israel are God's chosen people, right? How can, Amos, how can you say that? We're chosen. Or were they? C.S. Lewis writes, God is the only, God, God is the only comfort and he is the only supreme terror. The thing we most need is the thing we most want to hide from. He's our only possible ally. We've made ourselves his enemy. Some talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. We need to think again. They're still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. Lewis's point is that is, is if you're playing with religion... If you're not taking what God has called you too seriously like he does, you're just playing at religion. And when you stand before God, he won't be a comfort. He'll be a terror. And that's Amos' point to Israel. Listen, you're just playing around with religion. You're not serious about this. And you think God is going to be this great comforter. But he's going to be your greatest terror. 
He says, listen, just look at your lifestyle. I didn't read it, but in, in the following verses in chapter 2, verses seven, 6, 7, and 8, says, they sail the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor. This is Israel. As upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments that, taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Listen, their lifestyle doesn't live up to their confession. It's the same as those, those nations around them that he just spoke about. No different. And that's what Amos lays down in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and into chapter 6. These indictments on the nation Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Chapter 5 and verse 7. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 10. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. Verse 12, you oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in courts. Verses 21 in chapter 5, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. This is God talking. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. You're playing at religion. And just as he started out in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, I will punish you, Israel, for your sins. I'm outraged. And that's what we see in chapters 7 and 8 and 9. We get a series of, of five visions that, that Amos relays to Israel. First of all, in chapter 7, a swarm of locusts and fire. If you remember back a couple of weeks, I told you that the, that the prophets are simply covenant lawsuit lawyers. And they come and they say, listen, read Deuteronomy 28. If you're faithful, you'll see these signs. If you're faithless, you'll see these signs. And locusts and fire and drought are the signs of unfaithfulness. So Amos is simply saying, look at the evidence. Then he goes into a vision of a plumb line next to a, a tilting wall meant to communicate how far Israel has leaned away from the perfection of God's law. Then Amos gets a vision of a basket of ripe fruit. In other words, it's showing them that this, this prosperous era that they're in, this era of prosperity, is on the verge of rotting. Have you ever had a piece of fruit? I, I'm eating a lot of bananas lately. They can go from perfectly ripe to like gross in a matter of, it seems like hours, but it's probably a day or two. And that's what Amos is saying. It might look good now, 
but you're on the verge of rot. You'll see it. And then he gets this vision of the Lord standing at their temple, probably in Bethel or Gilgal, and smashing the temple down. These visions are all ways that Yahweh is asking Israel, examine yourself. Look at yourself. Take a moment. Look at the indications of your faith, faithlessness, locusts and drought. Hold up the plumb line against what you're doing in God's law. Don't assume the prosperity or the ripe fruit means God's blessing. And isn't that what God's word is always calling us to do? To hold up the plumb line? I mean, isn't that why you're here today? <laughs> I hope that that's a reason you're here today. For God to, to in, by his perfect word, hold up the plumb line against your life. Paul and writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 13, verse 5, was saying this exact same thing to the Corinthians. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Hold the plumb line up, he's saying. That's what First, Second Peter 1.10 is telling us. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Examine yourself. Take a look. Hold up the plumb line. Have you ever done that? John the Baptist told this to the Pharisees. They came out to see what it was all about, and he looked at them and he said, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. You know what he was saying? Where's your fruit, guys? You guys claim to be these holy men. Where's your fruit? See, the Bible nowhere tells us that because you spoke a prayer 22 years ago that you're saved. The Bible nowhere tells us that if you grew up in a Christian family, you're okay. The Bible nowhere tells us that if you go to church relatively consistently throughout your whole life, that you're in. The Bible nowhere says that because you were born in a nation that calls themselves Christian, that you're in. That you're okay with God. That's the mistake that Israel was making. As always, when I preach on this, I'm, I'm careful. I don't want you to leave here with the message that you're not saved. Truth is, I don't know. <laughs> Only God knows. But I do always want to tell you, you can have confidence in your salvation. And, and there's three ways you can know if you're saved. Three ways that you can have confidence. The first way is that you depend upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and his work alone. That he lived the life that you never can. Perfect in every way. He earned heaven. But he didn't keep it to himself. He, he, he agreed to go and hang on the cross and take the full wrath of God and rise again on the third day to prove his victory over sin and death. If you trust in Christ's work alone, 
that wonderful transaction happened where forensically, by the book, your sins were put on Christ and Christ's perfect robe of righteousness was placed on you. That's the first step. That's the first way you can know. The second way you can know is that if you actually confessed your need for Christ's righteousness. If there was a moment in your life that you got down on your spiritual knees and you said, I can't do this. I need you, Christ. I need your righteousness. I can't do this life. I can't do enough good to earn heaven. I am, I am a filthy sinner and I need forgiveness. And if you've confessed that and you've repented, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins. Depending on the completed work of Christ, confessing your need and your sinfulness and repenting. And the third way you can have assurance is that if you have the fruit of God's indwelling spirit on the branches of your life, that's how you know you're saved. That's where your confidence comes. That's what John the Baptist and Paul and Peter are calling us to examine. There will always be visible change when the Spirit regenerates you. Always be concrete things you can point to in your life so that you can have confidence in your salvation. You see, salvation is evidentiary. There's evidence for your salvation in your life. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, that we just read together as a, as a congregation, gave us two help, very helpful ways that we can examine ourselves. One is by examining our words. What words are coming out of your mouth? Sinclair Ferguson wrote, The tongue is the hinge on the door which, uh, on which the door into our souls swings open in order to reveal our spirit. In effect, the words are like so many media people rushing to file their reports of the condition of our soul. Jesus said it another way. He said, Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's one of the ways we can hold a plumb line up to our lives, people. What are your words like? What are your words like? Are your words bitter and angry? Or kind and forgiving? Are your words ripping and hurtful? Or are your words edifying and encouraging and building up? Are your words predominantly accusatory? Or are they forgiving? Are your words tender and loving or harsh and severe? You see, people, it's good and it's right to examine ourselves. But here's the rub. You can't do it alone. Your mind will, will almost not allow you to condemn yourself, to look at yourself honestly. You need other people. That's why it's critical that we invite people 
invite people, encourage people to say, look at, look at my life. Do you see evidence of the Spirit's activity in my life? Do you see it? Please think and meditate on that and tell me. I need to know the truth and don't sugarcoat it. We must ask people to examine and speak into our life so that we know, as C.J. Mahaney uses that illustration in his book, that, that we have cream cheese on our face and we don't know it. And we think we look great. And we have this big blob right there. We can't see it. Only other people can see it. And let me tell you guys, this can only happen in the context of a loving body, a loving community, a church. This is what the church, the vision of Christ's vision for the church is, to be this type of community. If you never do this, how do you know if you're not like Israel? How do you know? Just assuming your status throughout life. How do you know you're not like those Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7? When they came to him, they assumed they were Christians, and he said, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know? Do you want that kind of unexpected thing? Each one of us desperately needs people in our lives like Amos to come and tell us the truth. What do you see? Please tell me. C.J. Mahaney tells, as he writes, tell us the truth in the context of the gospel. That's exactly what Amos does. In chapter 9, we see the crescendo of Amos's prophecy against Israel. And we see Israel being destroyed there. Listing out how God will satisfy his anger and utterly destroy them. And then look with me at verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken pieces, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord. I will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will over, be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I'll bring back my exiled people, Israel. They'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will, be, they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. Now, I want you to see this clearly. Throughout Amos, for nine and a half chapters, you've had God, God's anger put on center stage. God is outraged at, at sin. Amos, I think you would agree with me, is consistent in that tenor. All the way up to chapter 9, verse 11. And that anger at sin cannot just be dismissed. As we see in what historically happened to, G to Israel. Israel, about 40 years after Amos came, they didn't change, and they were taken away by the Assyrians in 722. And they never returned. 
ten tribes gone. Amos prophecies about anger, God's anger came true. And God is still angry at sin of the ungodly. Ephesians 5, 6 tells us, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of sin the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. God does not change. He is immutable. God is outrageously angry at sin, but he is also outrageously and unexpectedly the God of grace. And this is what I want you to see. These last four verses of Amos are, are it's what it's all about, is the grace. We hear words like restore, bring back, rebuild, replant. We hear the concepts of bounty and of prosperity. This is a picture of the outrageous and unexpected gospel. Anthony Salvaggio in his commentary writes, In these verses, Amos predicts a day when Israel will be restored And in that day, the new Israel will include all the nations. This prophecy by Amos is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, we're all like Israel. We all deserve God's wrath. But then Jesus did something outrageously unexpected. He took the full wrath of God on himself. In other words, Jesus takes the consequences of God's anger that we saw for nine and a half verses, and we get the grace that we see in the last four verses of the book. John said it like this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a propitiation for our sins. I'm reading from the ESV and the NAS intentionally because that's a theological word that is lost in most translations propitiation is God turning his wrath aside from those who deserve it and putting it on someone who doesn't but that's exactly what Jesus unexpectedly did on the cross didn't he he took God's wrath so that we don't have to A.W. Tozer put it this way, the cross is the lightning rod of grace that short-circuits God's wrath to Christ so that only the light of his love remains on believers. You see, what is so outrageous and so unexpected is the lion's wrath should rightly be directed at me and at you. But Jesus allows himself to be taken up upon a hill and hoisted up on a cross so that he will attract the wrath of God. So that the only thing left for us is love. That's the outrageous and unexpected gospel that we celebrate here today. That's what we do here. That's what the bread and the juice signify. It's that unexpected and outrageous grace. When Jesus took bread on that night and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he was breaking the bread and giving it to them. And he was saying, look, 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 this is my body. This is my body broken for you. This 
is what you deserve. And I'm going to take it. He took wine and he gave it to his disciples. And as he was giving it to them, he said, look, 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 look at the color. It's not your blood that's going to be shed. It's my blood that's going to be shed. You don't die. I do. I'm going to take the wrath of God for you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we celebrate? The freedom that we have from God's wrath. Let's remember that and celebrate that this morning. Elders, please come forward.